going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, happy new government swearing in day or for those who don't like politics a whole lot. Happy Tuesday. Hope all's well with you and yours. Coming up, uh, leading off the show, we're going to recap today's uh, cabinet swearing in. Premier Jason Kenney sworn in today along with his cabinet, naming off the list of people who will be uh, representing different portfolios. We'll break that down with MRU political science chair Dwayne Bratt. Also coming up through the course of the show today, medication risks not disclosed here in Canada. Now, Canada's behind the U.S., U.K., Australia, and others when it comes to uh, disclosing some of the risks associated with medications. We'll talk to Dr. Barbara Mintz after uh, 4 o'clock on that topic. Also, something that I want to rejuvenate a little bit, because during the election campaign, I put True Crime Tuesday on hold uh, because there was a lot of other things going on. As part of my due diligence as news director and as a reporter way back when was to go through and get uh, apply for all the documentation for major crimes in Calgary from the Parole Board of Canada. And over the last couple months or so, I've accumulated a few uh, pretty high profile cases and documentations. And so we'll talk the case of Susan Elko. After four o'clock as well, uh, her killer, Scott Ferguson, uh, has kind of gone through the parole board system. And we'll give you the very latest on that coming up uh, again after four o'clock. After five o'clock, we are going to chat with the counselor, Ward Sutherland. A lot of questions surrounding um, the funding formulas, the possibility of getting funding, et cetera. For four major projects, the BMO Center, of course, is one. The new event center slash arena is another. Arts Commons, the expansion there. And, of course, the one that's been at the top of uh, the capital list for what feels like eons, the new field house. All four of those were sort of the the basis for yet another uh, altercation. We'll call it that. At City Hall yesterday. So Councillor Sutherland is going to give us a little bit more background and where he's coming from in terms of what the money is, where the money is actually going to be coming from. And he's going to explain the leveraged aspect of it. You might have heard during the news uh, this morning with Aurelio is sort of the the bare basics to the story. We're going to go much more into the, the depth aspect of that story. And after 5.30 today, we are going to go into a brand new Transit Watch text line. For those of you who are riding uh, on buses or on the train and you see something that just doesn't seem right and you don't know the number off the top of your head to go and call Transit, you need to get somebody or you, you don't have Twitter so you can't tweet at them, well, they've unveiled this new text-based reporting system for riders so that they can share their concerns about safety, security, all that kind of thing. Uh, Calgary Transit Director Doug Morgan is going to join us after 5.30 on that particular topic. We're going to start things off, though, talking brand new cabinet and a little bit of provincial affairs. Mount Royal University political scientist Dwayne Bratt joins us next here on Calgary Today. Your Honor, I, Jason Thomas Kenny, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will duly and faithfully and to the best of my skill and knowledge execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as president of your executive council 
and Minister for Intergovernmental Relations for the province of Alberta. So help me God. So that is new Premier Jason Kenney as he has been sworn in, along with a cabinet of 22 and some familiar names and some not so familiar names, including uh, the gentleman who was on our show yesterday coming in as the new health minister, Tyler Shandro for Calgary Acadia, Rick McIver in as transportation minister, uh, Doug Schweitzer gets minister of justice and solicitor general. We have Sonia Savage of Calgary Northwest as energy minister and a whole bunch more. Again, 22 total, many of them here in Calgary, because let's face it, that's where the base for the UCP has been. Uh, the base for the NDP is in Edmonton. I believe there's one Edmonton uh, MLA who is taking hold of a cabinet position. Did I more into to what today's announcement or today's swearing in brought in, we bring in Dwayne Brad. Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Anything that really stick out to you as either being a surprise or anything that really stuck out to you in terms of what uh, the, the tone is being set, I suppose, by today's uh, cabinet naming? So several things jumped out at me. One is the size of the cabinet. And when you include the premier, it's, it's 23. Um, I thought they were going to go with a smaller cabinet, not as small as, as Rachel Notley's first cabinet of 12, which was way too small. But I was thinking somewhere in the 18, 19 range. Uh, but 23, including a couple uh, associate ministers, I think that reflects just the size of their caucus and a desire to make Make sure uh, enough people are happy. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the the appointments and did anything really kind of take you by surprise? I mean, Rick McIver's name was was one that didn't surprise me. Didn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. Um, What did was Travis Taves. Yeah. Uh, finance minister. He wasn't even on my uh, my uh, pool list of uh, appointments. So, um, you know, looking up his his background, he's a cattle rancher with, who's dabbled in the gas business, has an accounting designation. So, strong business background uh, for Taves, and it also represents the uh, northwest corner of the the province. He's from Grand Prairie, so uh, he's one that uh, that I miss. But obviously, Jason Kenny. Uh, did not. You mentioned off the top how Calgary-centric it was. 13 mm-hmm. ministers out of uh, 23 from Calgary. Uh, but more importantly, many of the big portfolios, so not just Premier, but Justice, Health, Transportation, Energy, uh, all from the city. Mm-hmm. Does that set a tone at all? I mean, obviously, as I said off the top, the NDP's stronghold is Edmonton, so there wasn't a big pool to pull from in Edmonton, but how do you make sure that you uh, are appeasing those people up there without... That's the challenge. Uh, Representation matters. The rivalry of Calgary and Edmonton is real. The NDP were lucky when they formed government, even though they had a smaller caucus and they swept Edmonton, they won almost half of the uh, Calgary seats. So they were able to appoint people like Joe Cece and Kathleen Ganley and uh, and Stephanie McLean and Brian Malkinson. So there was a large cohort in Calgary. Uh, Kenny doesn't have that luxury. So the one person who did win in Edmonton, uh, Casey Madeau, mm-hmm. um, is municipal affairs minister, but he also used some people around the donut of uh, 
Edmonton. So Nate Glubesh uh, from Strathcona Sherwood Park is uh, with Service Alberta. Dale Nally, uh, Associate Minister for Natural Gas, is from St. Albert as well. So he was able to do that, but clearly this is a Central Alberta and Calgary-specific cabinet. Every time we have a new cabinet named, we have different positions that are created and and different portfolios that are uh, molded together and moved together. One that comes to mind right now is the Minister of Culture, Multiculturalism, and Status of Women is now uh, all under one riding, and that's under one portfolio, and that's Leela here. Do you get the sense at all? Was there anything that shocked you in terms of the sort of the uh, moving around of the pieces? Uh, Not shocked me, but uh, was one of the more humorous elements in the swearing-in, and that was the appointment of Grant Hunter uh, from Tabor Cardston as the Minister for Reducing Red Tape. Mm -hmm. And initially in the uh, release, it just said the Minister for Red Tape. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We've kind of defeated the, the purpose. So I've been joking all afternoon, you know, is he introducing blue tape to represent the Conservatives? You know, or is this out of yes, minister, you know, um, but that was a major priority, um, a major campaign promise that Kenny made about reducing the amount of government regulations. And he's actually appointed someone whose job that is to to deliver. Mm -hmm. One of the other aspects of this is you got a sense of where they want to go with house leader, deputy house leader and whip. And you see some of the the names that have been there a while. Jason Nixon's the house leader, Rick McIver's deputy house leader and Mike Ellis is the whip, but underneath the deputies are all up and comers, Doug Schweitzer, Sonia Savage and, and Joseph Sco. I mean, these are, these are names that are sort of the up and comers. I think that uh, Jason Kenny's hoping well, to I mold. Cal- kill, uh, call Doug Schweitzer an up and comer. He's just been named justice <laughs> minister. Um, what was interesting is you don't see Nathan Cooper on that list. Yeah. Um, and either in cabinet or as a party whip house leader, all of those sorts of things. And that's because I, think they intend to have him elected as speaker. Right. Uh, it is elected by the MLAs, but this was a pretty clear signal uh, from Kenny on who he would like to be uh, speaker, and that's uh, Nathan Cooper. Were you surprised at all that there wasn't maybe more attention or a new uh, portfolio created that really honed in on the energy sector, which is something that they really pounded the pavement on we during did. the campaign? I mean, the, we already have a minister of energy, mm-hmm. and that's been long lasting or long standing. But they put one of the big, uh, their big new recruits in there, and that's Sonia Savage, who directly worked with the Canadian Pipelines Association. And so uh, she had been speculated widely that she was going to be energy minister. She is. I think that's a very important role, um, and she is going to take some real leadership on that. Similar when Jason Kenney himself elected to become Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, it reflects his campaign promise of fighting for Alberta against Ottawa mm-hmm. and possibly against other provinces. And so if you're going to fight, you want your biggest fighter in that portfolio, and that's, that's Kenny himself. Absolutely. When you look at this list uh, of the cabinet, who sticks out as maybe that one person that maybe surprises somebody that is going to be maybe stronger than some would have anticipated in your eyes? Uh, I don't know where where we'll have to see. Um, I will say already the two most controversial picks were Jason Nixon and Adriana LaGrange. Mm -hmm. So Nixon... um, 
has uh, gone into some some hot water in in the past uh, around sexual harassment issues, uh, around uh, some poaching issues, uh, around uh, an incident with a peace officer. Um, nevertheless, uh, the UCP is is going ahead with Nixon. He's a he's a very powerful force in in central rural Alberta. Adriana Lagrange is out of Red Deer. Um, she is uh, head of the was head uh, of the Catholic uh, school board in Red Deer as trustee, uh, but is a very staunch Catholic and very and ties to the pro life movement. And so, putting her in education may uh, is already giving people who are worried about GSAs um, uh, some some jitters right now. So we'll we'll have to see. I mean, it's only day one. But those are the two that are going to be the most controversial picks. And realistically, I think the the key for Jason Kenney, and, and he said it from day one, is that as premier, he's going to be making uh, the economy priority number one. And I assume going into that cabinet meeting and over the next few days, they get ready for the, the first session of this government is uh, focus in on that. Make sure that those are priorities one, two, three, and probably right through to 12. Yeah, in many respects, it's it's a it's a more experienced cabinet than what the NDP had on its first day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had a lot more people to choose from. They obviously were preparing for victory for much longer, um, and I think that's why the cabinet is is so so large. Mm-hmm. And if you go down the list, there's lots of uh, private sector business experience uh, throughout the cabinet. Absolutely, it'll be uh, interesting to watch what they what this cabinet does do over the next little while here. Uh, Dwayne, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. Okay, you're welcome. Health Canada's drug safety warnings not consistent with other countries, according to a new report from a UBC professor. To dive more into that headline, which you can find on Global News, I'll post the link as well on uh, on my Twitter, at Calgary Today. We welcome Dr. Barbara Minces, the Associate Professor, School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Hello. Um, I just wanted to say, though, I'm an affiliate with the University of British Columbia. Um, I work at the University of Sydney in ah, Australia. There we go. Now yeah. now we got the full details <laughs> yeah. there. All right. Uh, doctor, going back to that headline, Health Canada's drug safety yeah. warnings not consistent with other countries. What did you find in your studies? Okay, so we looked at the drug safety warnings that had gone out over a 10-year period uh, in Canada, Australia, the U.S., and the U.K., and we found that actually each of the regulators was very inconsistent with the others. So Health Canada only put out warnings about half of the time when one of the other regulators had put out warnings, but in total, All four of them only warned, so the regulators all only warned about, um, you know, put out the same safety warnings about 10% of the time or one in 10 of the warnings. And that's a concern because, uh, of course, these medicines are likely to cause similar types of harmful effects. Uh, might be something that's very rare, but there's no reason because someone is Canadian uh, rather than an American or a Brit that mm-hmm. they would, you know, that they'd experience it less. Do we have a reason as to why the discrepancy with the Canadian system? 
Um, no, but as I mentioned, the discrepancy, there was a discrepancy in Canada, but there is actually a discrepancy in all of the countries. So really nobody is consistent with each other. And um, Health Canada doesn't publish information about why, for instance, they choose not to send out a warning if another country has sent out a warning. So very hard to find out. Um, we, you know, one, one of the things we're saying is there really should be much more transparency about the safety warnings and also uh, a way that people can find out about what all, uh, right, you know, has there been any safety warning anywhere about one of the medicines that they're taking um, rather than necessarily depending only on their own regulator. Mm-hmm. Should we be concerned that the different countries have different um, warning systems, I guess, in place or different yeah. uh, rules in place for those warnings because uh, again to that point is if if you're using one of these drugs you may think hey it's safe because it's here in canada but then uh, you know across the pond it might be a completely different story Right. So that doesn't make sense. There's no reason it should act differently in your body. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a really, there could be a really good reason. It could be that the drug is used in a different way in the U.S. than it is in Canada. So one of the warnings that occurred in the U.S. but not in Canada was about uh, unapproved use of a drug for serious fungal infections, saying, wait a minute, um, don't use this for milder problems because it does have serious risks. Um, maybe it's not being used in Canada for those, you know, in that kind of a, an unsafe way. But uh, it's very hard to know from the outside. And one of the other things we found was that there were sometimes differences in the timing of when mm-hmm. a warning went out. And an example is for, you know, very commonly used class of drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, that very rarely can lead to um, higher risks of diabetes. And um, Health Canada was one year later in putting out a warning about that than Australia or the U.S. So um, uh, something like that, like the uh, clearly the evidence was available a bit sooner um, than when the warning went out to Canadians. And um, like often these warnings are also going out to, you know, mainly intended for doctors who are prescribing a drug because uh, they're not all for commonly used medicines. This might not be your area of expertise, but I'll ask the question you can okay. answer and, and need need be is, is you mentioned the timing issue. And I wonder if, let's say Canada is, say, a year behind Australia on something. And let's say the warning gets put out in Canada. And then somebody not knowing that there was a warning in Australia sees that and goes, well, am I, you know, could Health Canada, for example, be liable for waiting as long as they did? I don't think that they would be, I don't think that they would be specifically liable. I think one of the things that were looked, because, um, uh, it is, it's, you know, in terms of legal liability, you're right, mm-hmm. that's not my area of expertise. Right. Um, so I probably just uh, won't answer on okay. that. But, but, it, but you know, there sometimes, uh, this is, it's true, only one source of information, and sometimes people do get information from other sources. So one of the things we're doing is, in this same study, we're doing a follow-up to look at um, if there was a difference between two countries and whether a warning went out about a specific drug risk, did that make a difference to prescribing? 
So, um, you know, because um, our guess is that it matters whether regulators are sending out warnings um, to say, you know, perhaps something like uh, stick to a lower dose of this drug or you might need um, laboratory testing uh, once a year or various other things that, that are recommendations in those warnings. But it's also possible, certainly, that people get that information from other sources. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the reason the warning came out is that a study, um, you know, there, there was a new study of the safety of a medicine that was published. Right. Final question for you. When it comes to those who are needing these drugs or they're, they're kind of curious about uh, the warnings or that, what's, what, what do you hope they take away from your report and what do you think the next step should be from a governmental standpoint? I think the next step from a governmental standpoint is much more openness about safety information once drugs are already on the market. Health Canada has just announced a very important step in opening up the the information that used to be secret from clinical trials that are submitted to Health Canada to get a drug onto the market. Uh, We need the same kind of opening up for post-market studies. So studies of the safety of medicines that are already uh, out in use in Canada. And that's something that there really hasn't been enough attention to. And then um, the second side in terms of what people should do, I think really nothing very different from what they're doing now. I think it's it's important to always ask your doctor when you're prescribed a drug, both Um, you know, what's the likelihood that it's going to help me get better? So, you know, how likely is it to be helpful? And then also, um, what are the common side effects and what are the rare serious risks and of use of this medicine? Mm -hmm. Dr. Minces, I do appreciate the time and the insight this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. There you go uh, on that story again. I'll post the link from globalnews.ca on my Twitter at Calgary today if you want to learn more about Dr. Mintz's report. Consider this another one of those cases highlighting the discrepancy between the sentence handed down to a a convicted killer and how long they actually spend behind bars. Susan Elko was found stabbed to death in a condo in Mission back on September 14th, 2014. Her boyfriend, Scott Ferguson, was originally charged with second-degree murder in the case, but a jury found him guilty of manslaughter in March of 2017. During the trial, the couple's relationship was described as tumultuous, featuring arguments and several breakups and get-back-togethers. According to the Parole Board of Canada, the couple had been consuming alcohol and drugs before going fishing the night Elko died. They got into an argument and went home. The board says Elko kicked Ferguson in the groin and he put a folding knife on the counter. Elko picked it up and reopened and opened it. Ferguson tried to take it from her and stabbed her multiple times in the head and neck area. Ferguson was sentenced to eight years in prison for manslaughter, but with credit for time already served, waited for uh, waiting for the trial... He had just four years left behind bars. In October, Ferguson was granted day parole for the first time. Yeah, a year and a half into his four-year sentence. The parole board says he has abided by all of his conditions, including not consuming drugs or booze. He has full-time employment and has a goal of returning to a construction job, roofing in particular. He applied for full parole recently with a plan to continue along his positive path. Ferguson also has the full support of family and his corrections officers. 
The board uh, noted the seriousness of his actions and what he did, even while intoxicated. They also say it's the only conviction on his criminal record, adding he has uh, shown stability and built credibility during his day parole. The board said, and I quote, you have used your time for the rehabilitative purpose for which it is intended. In that hearing, the board did grant Ferguson full parole, which comes with the same conditions he had during his day parole. So let's just conclude this by looking at the numbers and the context. Scott Ferguson found guilty of manslaughter and the death of Susan Elko in September 2014. About three years later, March 2017, he was sentenced to eight years in prison. But with time, uh, with credit for time already served, his time behind bars was reduced to four years. Here we are, two years after he was originally sentenced, and Ferguson is already out on full parole. Let that soak in for a second. It's one of those, again, this is one of those conversations that I'm going to continue to have for the next few Tuesdays. I have a few of these parole board documentations. Some of them are stories similar to this. Others paint different pictures. I'm curious what you think about this one. Because again, it's a manslaughter conviction. It's not murder. It's not uh, your 25 years no, uh, life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. It's no guarantee parole eligibility. But with these, especially with manslaughter, and this is uh, one of those cases that was painted very much in the court's eyes as being almost self-defense. Where Mr. Ferguson had this thought process that if he didn't stab Susan Elko, Susan Elko was going to stab him. Is two years just in your eyes before he's out on full parole? It, did he need to serve the full four or was eight the best option available to you? Does it depend on his actions while out on day parole? There's a lot of questions that come up every time the parole board meets to have a hearing for someone who has been convicted of murder or manslaughter or some of these more serious crimes. Let me know what you think about this one. 403-974-8255. You can text me uh, with some of your answers there. Scalgar today on 770 CHQR. Wanted to reset a story from last night from our own Aurelio Perry. And in case you missed it over the course of the day, City Council approving the terms and conditions on how a reserve fund can be used when it comes to the four major long-term unfunded projects. The vote was 10-3 with the three being against being Jeremy Farkas, Peter DeMong, Andrew Farrell. One of those four and was a part of some of the fireworks a little bit later on during the course of this discussion was Councillor Ward Sutherland. And he joins us now on the program. Councillor, thanks for the time. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about what council decided upon yesterday and, and what exactly you are proposing or what is now in the cards for these four major projects. Yeah, thanks. So basically, it's a financial strategy. So it's over a long period of time. And all these four projects, by the way, none of them are going to happen at the same time. Uh, in fact, like the field house might not even start for six years or so. So what we set up is a separate fund where uh, we can take uh, cash from our reserve funds because we have too much uh, reserve funds, and we can use it for capital projects um, to be available when we're going forward with projects. All four projects 
involve leveraged money. So a prime example is the uh, BMO expansion of the Tier 1. That was approved now, and moving forward, in fact, construction is going to happen within less than six weeks from now. The city contribution was $166 million, and we leveraged $333 million from other orders of government. What does that mean to Calgarians? Well, basically, we're going to have one of the top-tier convention centers in Canada. They constantly turn away conventions and events that will generate uh, almost $300 million a year to the economy and create 500 permanent jobs. So the second phase, obviously, is the event center, and we're in negotiations right now with that. And the other projects are Arts Commons and the Fieldhouse. So it's an overall strategy of how we're moving forward. So each chair of each committee has to come back with the leveraged money, with the entire project and the exact dollars there, because it can't be over budget, etc., present it to council, and then it gets voted on. If they don't meet any of those requirements the projects don't go forward. So we put all the safety valves in there on all the projects. So it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to all happen unless all the actions are taken and all the requirements are met. Is the hope here that maybe this sets a bit of a a standard for future funding for major projects down the line? Because it's certainly not going to end once these four projects are over. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I was disappointed and the conversation got a little bit heated yesterday of, uh, unfortunately, some of the councillors that don't agree with the project, uh, you know, are not giving accurate information saying it's going to compromise us and we're not going to be in good shape to handle things. So we still have our rainy day fund and it's at a minimum of 5%, which is $160 million. And uh, when a disaster or if disaster happens, we still have $75 million out of the hundred million for the flood so we're going to protect everything and it doesn't mean all projects are going to happen we're going to use this as a standard where absolutely everything has to be met our project's not going to get forward our the project scope might change completely in terms of only doing half of something uh if the funds uh are only available for that or we might not do it at all so uh it's really kind of a long-term pragmatic way to look at things and rather than uh oh what's the flavor of the month and we're going to jump on this project this is long-term planning for the citizens and and what's needed in our city has this been a bit of a challenge for councils of past because some of the smaller projects got lit, lumped up with some of the bigger projects and this maybe separates some of them so that we have a little bit more clarity on what money is coming from where and going towards where as well? Absolutely. And, and, and I think that was the criticism and the frustration of many of us on council, including myself, that for four years we've been kicking so many of these projects that can down the road, delaying decisions, delaying, delaying, delaying. And when that happens, nothing happens. And then, and again, a project might be the flavor of the week. And this way, when we have a commitment, then we know we're focused. We know that, okay, all four have to uh, be the focus and uh, project the money and do it in the right direction. And if you can't do that, then, of course, that project's not going to happen. So, it, it, you know, all these other projects that are going on on the side, there's accounted money for it, and it's 100% covered. But with the big ones, we have to plan it way in advance. And the important thing is, as I mentioned, is these projects have to be levered money. So it's if we're going to put in one dollar, if we can't find a dollar to match or more, then we shouldn't be doing it at all because we can't afford it. 
And that's sort of a, a different take from what I think some counselors have voiced concerns about, which is, hey, this is going to take money away from city maintenance or flooding uh, uh, emergencies or that kind of thing. This is uh, completely different money that's being squirreled away for future major projects is what I'm being led to believe here. Yeah, that's completely true, Joe. I'm, I mean, this is capital dollars. This doesn't affect the operating budget or take away from anything at all. In fact, that question's been asked maybe nine or ten during nine or ten times during council, and uh, the same answer is given: is no, it doesn't affect operating. No, it doesn't raise taxes. No, it doesn't raise taxes because the money in the ra- rainy day fund, for example, the interest from that stays in the rainy day fund. It doesn't go to the operating budget. These are capital dollars that are. Are totally separate. And in two of the projects, for uh, the BMO project and the event center, uh, if it moves forward, there's no operating cost to the city at all. Zero. There's no other commitment other than the capital. They're self-sustaining projects. Councillor Ward Sutherland joining us in the program to talk through this major capital projects reserve fund idea. And I know that there's been a few of these projects. I'll look at the field house as an example where we wanted this uh, for a long time and we just didn't have the funding mechanisms in place with this whole notion of having the money there for you through leveraging. Is this now sort of part of the plan going forward? Absolutely. And when I talk about leverage money, I want to make it clear, it's just not government money. We're looking at private investment and leveraging returns to do the projects. It's a smart thing to do. So, for example, is if we have to give some land up in that area that gets developed where we'll get a large return to help contribute to a project and then we collect taxes. It's a smart way to use the money. And right now, especially in this economy, we're saving a tremendous amount on our construction costs. So there's a benefit to that too, because, you know, the economies are always secular. It will get better eventually, and uh, it's going to cost us more long term. So if we can get these projects done now, we're going to actually save money as long as we don't have to borrow against it. Has that been a bit of a challenge? And this goes off kilter a little bit, but has that been one of the challenges with this recession and how we've been dealing with it? Is that there hasn't been really that, uh, you know, push for more construction or that kind of thing that we saw in past recessions because uh, one of the things that you everybody says is, hey, we've got low construction costs and that kind of thing. And that sort of buffered us in the past. This time we didn't really see that. And so we didn't see uh, the ground broken on a lot of major projects that maybe we would have in the past. Well, on infrastructure itself, we ended up spending uh, $6 billion over the last three years on interchanges, et cetera. And that was cash money. And what happened is when the times were really good in the previous councils, they voted on, I'll give you an example, is on an interchange. And they voted, okay, we need this interchange done in this area. And uh, we approve $110 million for the project. Then the bids would come out during the good times, and the bids would come in at $180 million. Mm-hmm. So at that time, then council would say, oh, well, it's way over budget. We can't do it. And they'd shelve it. But we still kept that $110 million in capital dollars in these reserves. They did that year after year for 10 years. And all of a sudden, we had $6 billion. But the, the disadvantage at the time was none of that infrastructure that was needed, like interchanges, happened. So what we did is of the last three and a half, four years, we've done all the overpasses, et cetera, but we've done that at fractional prices. So one of the overpasses, for example, in my area, the Canada Olympic Park overpass, mm-hmm. that was estimated at $115 million, And when the project was finished, it came in at $74 million. 
guess so it's huge savings. I was just going to say, it's, I guess it's one of those things where you, when you put it into perspective, and you remember over the last th- two, three years with this recession, is that we've had some some major projects built. It's just one of those things you, you almost take it for granted sometimes and how, how much has been built in some of the different items that you don't necessarily think of as, oh, infrastructure. You think of buildings, but you don't necessarily think of, you know, uh, uh, roundabouts and roadways and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, one thing that it's easy to forget now in tough times is one particular year, a few years ago, we had 40,000 people move into Calgary. Mm -hmm. That's an entire city. So we've been playing catch up on a lot of our uh, infrastructure in terms of roads and interchanges, etc., to all this growth that we've had over the last six or seven years. And we're finally catching up and and at a good price. And even the recent Crowchild improvement, uh, that money, we didn't have money for it. That money came from savings from the other projects. We saved so much money, we're able to take that money and do the Crowchild and work on... uh, reducing bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. Ward, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks for shedding a little bit of light into what happened yesterday. You're very welcome. Have a great day. I know a lot of people are saying, well, why couldn't that money be brought back to the taxpayer? Depends on what your priorities are, I suppose. Do you want money? Do you want Do you want the cash in hand? Do you want facilities built? That's a different question for a different day, I'm sure. You're listening to Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Calgary Transit giving passengers another way to contact them if they've got safety concerns or security concerns, that kind of thing. And to explain more about this new way of communicating uh, is Calgary Transit Director Doug Morgan. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. It's good to talk to you and talk about our new uh, Transit Watch text application. Walk us through this and how it all works. Uh, so it's another avenue for our customers to interact with us when they see something that concerns them on our uh, transit system. Uh, they can actually text to a special number, 74100, and our 24-hour um, operation center will pick up that text and respond to them. And if need be, uh, dispatch uh, some of our staff to address the issue, whether it be uh, something to do with maintenance or security. And just another way for them to interact with us, um, that's in addition to our telephone line or our help phones on our C-train stations. Where did this idea come from? Really, it's, it's um, as technology is involved, uh, we've seen uh, our customers ask for different ways to connect with us. So uh, some of it came from uh, customer feedback. Others, jurisdictions have tried this out. And uh, texting is now probably the more convenient way to interact with folks. Uh, so we saw that opportunity and saw a different way to connect and deliver on our customer commitment. So we tested it out and said, you know, this would work for us. And with our staff uh, that around 24 hours, uh, we could respond more effectively and uh, improve our customer service. Yeah, you know, no one likes to call anybody anymore, right? Like, that's just the way <laughs> the world now. But that being said, again, it's just another one of those options that uh, the, the customer is going to be able to utilize at the end of the day. And if it's one that per- one person that uses it, it's uh, it's a victory in your guys' eyes, I'm sure. Exactly. And even get to get the feedback directly from customers is important to us. And if they're on a busy train, maybe they don't want to talk on the phone. They just want to fire a quick text. Uh, we'll engage with them and get their information and be able to respond quickly. So well, we're pretty excited about offering that up for them. And then we think it'll drive uh, some of that customer satisfaction uh, we're working for and, and keeping safety as our top priority. What kinds of things are you expecting to hear f- about through this text line? 
Oh, well, all types of things. We could see things like uh, maybe there's some broken glass they're concerned with. Uh, maybe there's someone that's uh, had a bit too much drink and has fallen asleep on one of the benches on the platforms and they want to make sure they're okay. So any feedback we can get from them if they have a concern, if, if something uh, is important to them, we want to hear about it. And we have enough staff that, that work 24-7 that we can respond to that um, and, and address the issue. Walk us through the preparation point to be able to get to the point where you can actually launch it. I assume that there was a testing out phase. And as you mentioned earlier, you guys were looking at uh, different jurisdictions who've used similar projects. So talk us through sort of the, the process in which you got to today. Well, really, it's important to us that if somebody does tech for help, that, that we're there to respond. So a lot of it was making sure the technology worked appropriately, uh, that we had the staffing in our control center that could respond, and that people know that uh, we're listening and we're connected to them. And then also looking at um, how we dispatch our staff and having the appropriate um, uh, peace officers and maintenance staff on uh, on the line in, in order to respond. So we just graduated uh, 10 officers last week, so we're staffed up and we're ready to respond. So we're really testing the technology in our response. And as we see uh, the line roll out, we'll be monitoring it carefully to make sure that we're responding to Calgarians' concerns. And if we need to make adjustments, we will um, as we belong. I was going to ask about the manpower and woman power that is going on behind the scenes as well on this, because as you mentioned, it's staffed 24-7. So where, yeah. is, where are you pulling the, uh, the, the people from to be able to make this work? Or are they, is it an added responsibility on, on, tr- on transit officers? How does that all work? So it is an added responsibility. So we already have uh, security uh, representatives in our control center 24-7. So they're answering Twitter. They're watching our cameras. They're answering current help phones and phone lines. So this will just be an added duty to watch this feed and and respond um, to customers. Plus then um, we have our dispatch staff like security officers and maintenance staff that are already out on the line. And we'll just be utilizing them in a different way. We get this feedback today through the phone line and through Twitter. This is just another avenue to get that same feedback in a different way. Doug Morgan, the director of Calgary Transit, joining us. And Doug, what's next? I mean, you've done texting, you've done Twitter, uh, you've done obviously the phone lines as well. Is there something else coming down the line with technology? Well, we've certainly embraced Twitter. That, that's one big avenue for us to talk to customers. And who knows what technology brings? Uh, we're looking at ways to interact with our customers through our transit app as well as their little micro interactions we can get uh, to get that feedback from customers we do polling on a monthly basis to try to gather customer feedback so what's important to us is that we hear what's concerning our passengers and then we can adjust our business to respond to that so who knows what the future holds maybe there's some implant 20 years down the road that's (laughs) going to help people uh, think their feedback to us Uh, we're certainly open to those as those new developments come oh VR and AR and all those those fun things too, right? The robots are taking over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One final question for you is: What's your gauge of success with a project like this? I think um, that that uh, we we do that monthly polling on customers. So if we see them feeling safer on the system, uh, we also have some metrics around the ability for them to interact with us. We'd like to see those move up. That that core uh, customer satisfaction and also the use of the line that we, that we get a number of calls. So we'll be monitoring that. Uh, to make sure that it is being used and, and promoting that for customers to interact with us. So I think usage and satisfaction are key elements uh, to whether uh, this program is a success. Again, if you want to use this app, it's uh, you can text 74100 is the number. Doug Morgan from Calgary Transit, thanks so much for joining us again. All right, thanks very much. 
Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.